Hi, I'm Midge Gillish from the Cambridge Creative Writing Centre, welcoming you to our latest podcast about crime and thriller writing. This week, best-selling crime writer Sophie Hanna, who is also course director of our new crime and thriller writing masters at the University of Cambridge, will be chatting with another author of crime fiction, Alex Michaelidis. Alex's first book, The Silent Patient, became an instant New York Times number one bestseller. It's a psychological thriller about a famous painter who kills her husband but then refuses to speak ever again. The story is told by her therapist who's trying to persuade her to talk and to unravel what's happened. Alex graduated from Cambridge University with a degree in English literature before becoming a screenwriter and then a successful novelist. In this podcast, Sophie and Alex discuss their love of Agatha Christie and how they plan to spend a beach holiday devouring her novels. They discuss Greek myths and multiple drafts, how Sophie saved Alex's life and why publishing is full of very intelligent women. They mull over what makes a good title and why a writing room is rarely used for writing. If you're a crime fiction writer or reader, or you have a favourite crime novel, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at midge.gillis at tutor.ice.cam.ac.uk. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Cambridge Creative Writing Centre podcast. I'm Sophie Hanna and I'm recording this at beautiful Maddingley Hall. Uh, which some of you might know. If you don't know it, it's an absolutely stunning building in even more stunning grounds, and it's where the Institute of Continuing Education is based, or ICE, as we call it for short, because we want to sound like gangster rappers. Uh, And I am joined today by Alex Michaelides, who is the number one New York Times selling author of a psychological thriller called The Silent Patient, Thank you, Alex, for agreeing to be on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Sophie. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, And I have to say, Alex was so uh, impressed by this beautiful building. I I knew I'd invited the right guest uh, (laughs) when Alex took one look at the building and said, oh my God, this place is amazing, because that is how we all feel about uh, Maddingley Hall. Um, So, Alex, welcome to the podcast. And um, I would like to ask you, first of all, about... The Silent Patient, which came out in February. That's right, yeah. And it came out simultaneously here and in America. Yeah, maybe like two days difference, yeah. And it actually entered the New York Times bestseller list at number one, didn't yes, it? Yes, yes, that's right, yeah. How, how did you feel when you heard? I mean, were you at all expecting that to happen? No, it was, you know, because it's my first novel, it was totally off my radar, and I didn't expect it at, at all. So I didn't... I... I uh, when the, the editor rang from New York and told me, I didn't believe him and I thought it was a joke. And <laughs> it was it was wonderful. I was walking on air for, for ages. It was great, yeah. Did you demand independent verification that, <laughs> that this was true? He said, well, they sent me the list and I couldn't... I mean, that was incredible just to see that. It was it was wonderful. It felt it meant so much to, to me on a personal level as well, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's an incredibly gripping book. Uh, I remember when I first heard about it, which was long before I read it, but I, I heard a sort of plot blurb uh, when it was announced that the deal had been done and that it would be being published. And I thought, I have to read that book, just based on a few lines of, of description about it. So can you tell us, can mm-hmm, you blurb mm-hmm. it for yeah, us? Yeah, sure. It's, um, it's a story of a famous painter who one day uh, shoots her husband and then she never speaks again. 
and it's narrated by um, a psychotherapist who's trying to get her talking again as well as unravel the mystery of what happened the night she killed her husband. So the psychotherapist, it's kind of all on his shoulders, isn't it? Like, he's the one who has to try and persuade her to talk, and she hasn't spoken since... In six years, in yeah. Six, in six yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, and she knows, presumably, what happened, and he has to get her to talk somehow, otherwise no one will ever know the yeah. truth of what happened. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I first read that plot blurb, I think the reason I was so attracted by it was that I am kind of a mystery junkie. Mm-hmm. And for me, the idea of an unsolved mystery is just the most tantalising thing ever. Uh, and and what makes it even more tantalising is when there's a character who's fully present in the book who knows everything mm-hmm. but just isn't saying. It's kind of like a further stage of teasing for the reader, isn't it? That's so, interesting. You know, yes. like there are some mystery novels where it's like, there's a big mystery and we don't know the solution and so we have to go and find it. But it's almost even more provocative for people who love mysteries to kind of go, there's a big mystery, here's the person who knows everything but they aren't going to tell you. Mm. And that, it's kind of like a bit more, it just just sort of like ratchets up that desperation to know. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it in quite those terms. I mean, I suppose for me, you know, you and I have spoken before about Agatha Christie. I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on her again today. But I, um, I, I was very much, you know, in love with Five Little Pigs. Um, and there was something about the way that, that that's a murder in retrospect kind of story. And there's something about going to interviewing different people and trying to ask them to remember events from years before and try and sort of solve a murder in the past. I don't know why I find that so appealing um mm. but there's something about it it's like another you say like it's another layer another remove so yeah. it adds adds more intrigue to it i think yeah yeah and it's also a sort of a battle of wills isn't it because mm-hmm. you know it's how do you approach someone who just won't speak when they have the option of carrying on not speaking like yeah. how and, and obviously for the reader it's particularly enjoyable because we expect that he will uh, and I'm not giving away any spoilers but mm. we kind of expect like we'd be disappointed if we got to the end yes, of the book yes. and she'd still not said anything and we still didn't know anything yeah, so it's yeah. like how is this person who hasn't spoken for six years going to be made to speak anyway it's immensely gripping and if you have not read this book you must read it I am someone who guesses everything and there was a big surprise towards the end of this novel that I was like oh <gasps> And I hadn't seen it coming at all, so you've got to read it. So, Alex, tell us a bit about how, you know, what what was the origin of The Silent Patient? When did you first decide you wanted to write it? What mm-hmm. was the sort of journey between that first idea and publication? Well, I think there were decades between the original idea and the publication. I, I first, so I grew up in Cyprus, and, um, and the Greek myths are very prevalent there in the way that in England you might be taught Shakespeare at school. You know, in Cyprus you, you learn Homer and Euripides and about the age of 13 I hmm. came across this tragedy of Alcestis by Euripides. And it's, um, it's not often performed. It's a bit of a problematic play because it's about a woman who dies to save her husband and then she's brought back to life again and reunited with her husband and she refuses to speak and she remains silent until the end of the play. And there's no explanation given. Right. And people don't really know what to make of her silence. They don't know if she's, you know, overjoyed to see her husband again or is she furious because he allowed her to die for him. Um, it, it, it unsettles you. And it, there's also this refusion, or sort of refusal to conclude 
and so you don't quite know what you're meant to feel at the end of it. And for whatever reason, I'm not entirely sure why, that silence haunted me for, for years and years and years, and I kept thinking, how can I yeah. take this story and update it? Um, and I tried it as a, as a play, as a one-act play, and I tried it as a short film, and it was only when I had the idea of setting it in a psychiatric institute that suddenly it came to life in a, in a new, fresh way, and I was able to write the novel. But mm. there, was, there was many decades of it kind of mulling over in my unconscious, yeah. Sure. And there's something quite, I don't know, almost archetypal, isn't there, about the person who won't speak or the person who won't reveal. I mean, it's a very different kind of animal, but um, Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener. Okay, not read that. Oh, you you R- would R- really? adore it. Okay. It's one of my top five works of literature oh, of wow. all time. Okay, I'll definitely read it. And it's also very short. Okay, <laughs> so you can it's always read an advantage. It yeah, yeah. Uh, but that is, although it's not someone who won't speak, there is a central character in it, Bartleby, who won't explain and behaves in a way that to everyone around him just makes no sense. And whenever he's asked to explain his behaviour or indeed to do anything, he simply replies, I would prefer not to. Mm-hmm. It, it's mm-hmm. the most brilliant thing ever. But, like, would you agree that there's something kind of irresistible and probably archetypal Sphinx-like, about... yes, yeah, totally, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, what's happened since then is a lot of people have... A lot of women, particularly, have, have uh, said to me that they felt that, it, you know, that it, it, there was a kind of synchronicity with the Me Too movement and this, this story... Um, which was completely unintentional and coincidental, but nonetheless, I do feel that, that in Alicia's case, she's the heroine. It's sort of her last recourse is silence. You know, she's imprisoned mm. by you know these psychiatrists, and she's, you know, being hounded by the press and, and by you know people wanting to find out the truth, and so her only weapon really is simply not to speak. Mm. And of course, not speaking, it is a form of kind of taking your your power back. Yeah. But part part of why that works is that if you are not speaking, then it necessarily means that you're not trying to affect what anybody thinks about you. So everybody thinks what they think. If you don't say anything at all, yeah. then you're not trying to change their perceptions of you or of anything. And from a, from a you know a crime writer's point of view, I thought it was very interesting because she's a blank canvas that we project things onto. Mm. And there's something a bit scary and unsettling about someone who won't speak. Mm. And uh, and I, I I wanted her to be scary and unsettling at the, the start of the novel. I thought that was a very powerful image to have. Um, and then it became about letting her letting us into her thoughts slowly as mm. the book progresses. You know, I didn't want to do too much too soon because then she wouldn't be scary. You know, it's yeah, of... yeah. So did you write the novel while doing other work? I mean, yeah. did you have a day job? I was a screenwriter. I'm a screenwriter, um, and I. Uh, it wasn't going awfully well. I, I mean, I'd made three films and two of them, uh, first one didn't get released, the second one went straight to video, the third one had a limited release. It was, you know, with the best will in the world, you it, you know, a film can often go wrong with a, a decent script and great actors mm. just because um, production problems make the whole thing fall apart. And yeah. it, it's heartbreaking, it kept happening to me. And I had known that I'd always wanted to write a novel and a very specific kind of novel my whole life. And so I thought, okay, I was getting close to, it was in my late thirties. And I thought I'm getting close to giving this up because it's too painful. Giving and, screenwriting. Yeah. Giving up yeah. writing. And I just thought before I do, um, I am going to try and write this book that I've been promising myself that I would write since I was 12. And, um, I finally did, but it was an act of desperation. I didn't, re- <laughs> I didn't realize that you wrote it sort of 
actually consciously thinking before I give oh, up. Oh yeah, totally. That's the only reason that I could... It's so, so hard so, writing was, a novel. It's was, no fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you've written so many that I, I, I find it psychologically very difficult. And I think it's, um, you have to be quite robust and you have to be stubborn and, and you have to have a lot of you know, discipline and, and it takes an awfully long time. As a screenplay, you can knock off a screenplay in a few weeks, but a novel, you, you can't, you know. And so it took that level of desperation for me to actually sit down and say, right, I'm going to spend them two years, three years writing this. Yeah, but presumably you weren't thinking, I'm going to spend two or three years writing this and then give up. Presumably you were thinking... Well, or maybe not, but I would imagine you might have thought, well, I'm going to spend two years writing this and then hopefully the process will lead to me deciding not to give up because it will go well and then... Well, it felt like a very... You know, it's really funny talking about it with you now because it was all very kind of whispered voices in my head mm. just saying you should write this and have faith in this. And and I had been conscious of and ignoring those voices for a good couple of decades. And so it was... a. Uh, I wasn't sure what was going to happen to it. I don't know. I don't honestly think I didn't think it was going to be a bestseller. I didn't think anyone was going to read it. I mm. just thought I'm going to write this for me because mm. I wanted to. So basically, when I grew up in Cyprus um, and I was about 13 again, um, I, I discovered Agatha Christie and um, I, I spent one summer just devouring all of her novels at the beach um, mm. and reading one every two days. And, and I have to say that was probably the happiest one of the happiest experiences of my life. Definitely the happiest reading experience I ever had. Mm. And I knew that when I was going to, if I was going to write one book, it was going to be, in my head, I've read Agatha Christie so much and, and so often that I feel like I've internalised her to a certain extent. And I thought I wanted to write a book imagining if she were me and she had my life experience and were alive now, what might she write? Yeah. And then try and write a book that I could put up on the shelf next to hers. Yeah. And so when I got to a certain place with a silent patient, I printed it out and took a little copy to the beach in Spain and just sat there and read it over five days. Oh, brilliant. And I was really happy. It was really lovely. I was able to kind of recreate yeah. that, that, you know, a teenage experience. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I mean, we're, we're about to start a crime and thriller writing master's degree here at Maddingley Hall, uh, which I'm going to be teaching on. And in fact, Alex has agreed to come and talk to the students on the course. So that is going to be very exciting. But from a how to teach crime writing point of view I think reading Agatha Christie on a beach is pretty much lesson number one <laughs> anyone yeah. who wants to be a crime writer should definitely consider reading Agatha Christie on a beach I mean I, I do it all the time I do that too. is what my holidays are in fact I find a nice beach yeah. and I reread all my Agatha well, we Christie we should go together on we, should. Holiday. we should we should have an Agatha Christie reading on a beach holiday it would I mean, be amazing even, even today just coming to, to talk to you I'm, I'm spending the night in Cambridge and I, and I brought um, uh, which one did I bring I brought some Sleeping Murder and I brought another one with me as well just <gasps> Sleeping Murder yeah. That, you see, uh, that oh, after the funeral, that's one I've got too. After the funeral mm -hmm. is, I think, one of the top, top Christies. It's oh, one of really? my top okay, five. It's quite underrated, that it's one. It's hugely underrated. Okay. But I have a friend who is a psychotherapist, actually, mm -hmm. uh, and she's brilliant and very clever and very talented. And after the funeral is her favourite, Agatha Christie. Okay. And I was really pleased when she told me that because it's always been one of my favourites, but so few people mention it and give it the credit it deserves sleeping murder is another brilliant one so um, what i think so about the way i think about them now is because i know the twists obviously it's i look about this so i'm writing my next novel now i just look at the way that you know the, the poirot say you know it investigates the way he talks to the you know people how he I think when he looks in a room what he looks for and what he doesn't notice or what he does mm. notice or things that he thinks are missing or it's a way that the investigation progresses i suppose in not in a non 
procedural sort of way. Yeah, you know? yeah. And there's those brilliant touches. I mean, we've talked about this because as soon as we met for the first time, we quickly established that we were both massive Agatha Christie fans. Yes. Uh, and it's great when you meet another Christie fan because there's always like, what about this one? What about that book? And what about that detail? Well, you're channeling her, yeah, <laughs> clearly. You know, yes, you have been for a few years, which is amazing. Yeah, no, it's been a really uh, fascinating process. But, I mean, she is the best, isn't she? I mean, like, yeah. there's nobody... I, I, I would say, you know, she's still absolutely the best crime writer that there has been and so influential and actually now that you've said that about the silent patient being sort of what she might write if she were alive now and had had your life experience I can really see that and I think if you're a crime writer as we are who who is heavily influenced by Agatha Christie we probably like in terms of what we read that isn't Agatha Christie we probably are more attracted to the books where there is that clear Christie yeah and I influence. think you know I think when she's operating at her very best like so now my brief whenever I get lost is I think what would Christie do mm. and I know her well enough to be able to to then pull myself back to the the right road um and I think when she's up operating at her best with it you know it's when when the, the the revelation of the twist and a kind of emotional shift for the character are, are contained in one beat mm. yeah then it's really strong yeah you know yeah so when you finished The Silent Patient and obviously sent it to agents, publishers, was that a smooth process? Did you did it get picked up immediately, accepted for publication immediately, or yeah. did you have the sort of traditional twelve rejections? No, it was it was a dream come true, but I'd had a billion rejections before that point, you know, so I'd been dropped from by three agents during my screenwriting career and it was just it was a mess and I um I didn't have an agent when I wrote The Silent Patient. And then I found uh, an agency online that I thought seemed like a good fit. And I just wrote to an agent there and he said, uh, I said, would you have a look at this novel? And he said, sure, I will. And he did. And then we met three days later. And then within a week, it, it went to auction in the UK and it was just went from there. It was it was amazing experience. It was such a joy after all these years of, yeah. of, of being rejected to suddenly have this huge yes, this validation yeah. was fantastic. But in case anyone is listening to this who is an aspiring crime writer or someone who's still having those rejections, I think it's always important to think that the brilliance of that moment when someone goes, yeah, we love it, we want it, it's only brilliant because of what's gone before. Yes, like if you just yeah. stroll, if everything you'd ever written had been greeted with, yay, this is amazing, we'll publish it, we'll do it, we'll make it into a film... And there were, if there hadn't been those rejections, yeah, totally. So it's so actually what I what I yeah. the way I like to think of it is that, you know, when you're in that phase where things aren't going well, actually that is as valuable a part of the experience because that contrast is what gives meaning to the success when it eventually comes. And on a very in a very practical note, it makes you into a better writer. It did with me mm. because I you know I, I look back on on my early writing and I just sent things to agents who way too quickly after like one or two drafts thinking it was good enough and it wasn't good enough and mm. I I did I knew that the silent patient was my last shot and so it, well, I did mm. countless drafts I can't tell you how many yeah you know, 50 at least 50 drafts yeah yeah it was non-stop I drove myself mad I yeah. got a process at one point towards the end when I I thought it was kind of done that I would print it out and then I would make read it through and make notes and paper and then type up the notes and then print it out yeah and then after doing that for six months, I thought I'm going crazy because the notes weren't getting any less. They were just becoming different notes. Mm. Um, but then slowly over a year, they became less and less and less until I finally reached a point where I printed it out and I had no notes. 
And that was when I decided I could, should find, yeah. find an agent. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but I wouldn't have, if without all of the knocks and, and of the rejections, I never would have got to the place where I thought, you try harder. And you, yes, I yeah. need to make it yeah. perfect. Yeah. So it was auctioned in the UK, which means several publishers all were bidding for it and yeah. wanting to buy it. What about in America? Did that, got, the same thing happen there? It got preempted there by okay. uh, Macmillan um, straight away. Okay, so preempted basically means that, that there's an attempt to have an auction and then one publisher says, we want this so much that we'll pay a little bit more yes. if you take it off the table. It, it's like in house buying terms when somebody says, mm. we'll pay the asking price, now take it off the market. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is and exactly. what about the, because there's a movie deal as yeah. well, tell us about that. Well, that happened at the same time, so then the movie scouts in LA got hold of it and then it went to, there was a bidding war in, in Hollywood for it too, for the film rights. And um, that was, you know, the irony was not lost on me because suddenly these were producers that I'd been trying to get meetings with for 20 years unsuccessfully, mm. who had now managed to get hold of my mobile number and calling me at 11 o'clock at night in London, trying to persuade <laughs> me to sign with them. And it was a very bittersweet, strange experience and very surreal. Um, Interesting. So in the bidding war for the film rights, did you, were you at all swayed by... Like, if there was an offer from someone who'd never messed you around when you were a screenwriter versus one from someone who had, they did that no, come into it? None of them had messed me around because I'd never got to the level where I could ever have met any of these people okay. who were calling. So there was um, no kind of past baggage that affected no, your... No, no, but it was a longing to have worked with any of them. So it was a really hard decision. And then in the end, we went with Plan B, um, Brad Pitt's company, just because I think they make the best films right now and... Yeah. The producer um, has got a bunch of Oscars, and he's he's a very talented man. And he's a, uh, I'm gonna, I'm I you know they've hired me to do the screenplay, but I'm obviously, uh, a friend of mine's a critic, and he read the Silent Patient, and he said to me, oh, Alex, it's obvious to me now that, that you're a novelist, not a dramatist. Um, and it was wonderful to hear that because it suddenly put into yeah. context the 30 years, yeah. the 20 <laughs> years of failing as a screenwriter. Yeah. To suddenly think, oh yeah, because I found. It, it's not easy to write a novel, but being being inside someone's head so much easier than dramatizing yeah. the scene, which I still struggle with a lot. But you did agree to do the because the I think I'll, because I film. think I'll learn so much, you know, because yeah. it's such a great company. Um, uh, I think it's going to be an incredible opportunity, and I don't have much of an ego as a writer now. So, I'm, and that's the other piece of advice. If I were to give anybody advice, it would be you've got to learn to be plastic. You know, like um, I always think about uh, educating Rita. There's a bit where she's just like, you know, if it's crap, tell me it's crap and we'll tear it up, throw it at the fire and we'll start again. Mm. And I wasn't always like that. I would be rigid about plot ideas or character ideas or dialogue that I liked. And, and if you're rigid, you can't improve. Whereas yeah. now I'm happy to tear up the and patient and, and put it together if, again for a new medium in a different way and not be precious about my writing. So are you working on the script right now, or is it something... No, we're, we're going to try and find a director first. Okay. So it's giving me as, as much time as I can get to try and finish my next novel would be great. And since we're talking about it, I haven't actually had a chance to say this to you, Sophie, yet. But um, I mean, I really owe you such a huge... I'm going to be quite emotional talking about this huge debt of gratitude, because I think you may have saved my second book, you oh. know. I saw it's you. <laughs> I saw you about a month ago, and I was um, I was in a bad place about it, and I had had an original idea which I had lost faith in, and I told you about the new idea, and you sort of went, "Hmm, what was your original idea?" and uh, and I told you, and you said, "That's so much better. You must stick with that." And you also helped me reframe it and think about it, and um, I've 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 been singing your praises to everyone I've met since then because oh, it, it's not no, but it's it's a huge thing because not. Not many people who are at the top of their game would take the time 
to be so generous um, and to be so intensely helpful. And so if the book is, and now I'm excited, somehow you've done something where you've made me excited about the book again. And I feel like, yes, this is, you've given me permission to, to write it. And since I've seen you, it's the, the, the thinking part has all gone swimmingly. It's, it's wonderful. So you're obviously oh, extremely Excellent. talented. But what I said was, because you said you'd given up on the original idea because you thought it just wasn't feasible. And I said, what if God came down and said, you have to do that original idea. Yes. So then how are you going to make it work? If you had to make it work, how would you make it work? And then we both immediately thought of some ways. <laughs> yes, and so, I thought I've been using that technique of God came down. Yeah, oh, I use it all the time. I yeah. use it even for like, what restaurant should we go for? If God came <laughs> down and said Italian or Indian, it's just a really useful, it's like yeah. a sort of yeah. fake ultimatum yeah. way yeah. of decision making. I mean, the actual, I remember the, the actual dialogue exchange we had because it was so moving and powerful because I'd said to you, oh, I, don't, I don't know how to make it work. And you just said, Alex, make it work. And just that alone was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I will. Yeah, then. it's like if if it has to happen, then how's it going to happen? Yeah. Um, and then you start trying out ideas, and some of them might not be good, but then you just mm. reject the idea and try a new one because you know you have to make it work. It's just a kind of brain trick, but it it does really work. Yeah, but also, you're the only person I've spoken out loud to the, about the plot, you know, and that being able to speak to it, not just someone, but also like you know, really eminent crime writer, is not not everybody gets that opportunity, and it was really helpful. I just can't resist poking my nose into other people's <laughs> plots. I'm such a plot junkie. I'm just like, oh, let's think about plots. It's it's literally yeah. my favourite bit of the whole process. Yes, me uh, too. It's, it's like, me too. It's, it's like it's, it's a puzzle. Why, yeah, it? and mm. it links into a question I'm supposed to ask you at the end, but I'll ask it now since, since it's come up. Uh, are you a planner or do you start with an idea and see where it takes you? I'm not very good at improvising. Um, I'm a planner. Yeah. I do, what I what I do what I tend to do is 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 outline. Is I went to film school, you know, and and we had a really good uh, Disney uh, writer there who taught me, and he said write outlines because it saves you time. So yeah. I don't do lots of drafts. I do I did draft lots of drafts as well. But before that, I did countless number mm. of outlines for a year or so, where I just outline again and again and again and again and again. Yeah. No, I'm the same. I'm a real planner and. To call it planning makes it sound a bit like, you know, where shall we put a roundabout in this town centre? But if you call it story architecture, yes, it, is. it sounds pretentious, it's nice but actually... It... I always say to people that it's, to me, writing is about architecture. Yeah. That's yeah. how I think about it. And, you know, and I think without the architecture, it can fall apart. So I, where I do allow myself more freedom is with dialogue, but I don't tend to think about that too much till I'm writing the draft. No. But the actual beat of the scene and, you know, so... Billy Wilder is a big influence of mine, and uh, and he said if you write a, a scene without a plot point, it's a bad scene, and you'll cut it. So don't bother writing it. Mm. And whether or not that's true, I don't know, but that's something I've always stuck to. Um, and so when I outline, I, it's double checking, triple checking, that, that each each chapter has got a very solid plot point, a solid reason for its existence. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. you tend to waffle. I think, or I tend to. Yeah. So. Would you do you agree with the idea of this this thing we hear so much about you know difficult second novel syndrome? Mm. Do you think that's a real thing? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do. I was really <laughs> until until I met you and you helped me. I was really struggling with it, and you know I I did I when after you and I spoke last whenever it was you you said to me your students would find it amusing that someone who had a novel went to number one felt they didn't know how to write a novel, but I every day start again at zero. I really don't mm. feel that I have 
I guess on some level, the, the experience of having written one and, and worked through all the difficulties has helped me. Mm. But on the other level, I think every story is different. And so... It, yeah. You, you do, to a certain extent, feel you're starting again. Yeah. Every time. Right, yeah. But it must be quite nice. I mean, compared with the whole screenwriting experience, have you felt that, you know, one of the advantages I would imagine with a novel is that it's much more just your thing. And so it's faults you can correct it's strengths you're responsible for whereas with screenwriting presumably you could have a brilliant idea and somebody could come along and say oh no we can't do that because this committee has said we need that which happens all the time it's much more not you know you can't own it in that same way yeah it was a joy being up being control of something from start to finish you know it was a real it was a revelation to me and that was partly why i wanted to do it was just to see if i could try and write something on my own Mm. you know and do you think, like, in terms of when you think about your future writing life, do you see it being more writing novels now and slightly less writing screenplays? Yeah, or? yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. I'd like to do this, you know, there's, there's another movie I, I've got an idea about that I'd like to try writing. Um, but that's kind of it, you know. I, I really feel like I would uh, the most pleasurable writing experience I had was was writing The Silent Patient, was writing in my ki- at my kitchen table or sitting in Cafe Nero and just working and just... Mm you don't you know it's partly I mean not having to deal with nightmare people you know and I the transition from movies to books is such a revelation to me because you know I don't want to be offensive but you know in films it's often groups of men and it's about who's got the biggest ego and who can shout loudest Mm. and then going into publishing my experience has been it's been often rooms of you know very intelligent women will listen to you and let you finish your sentence before speaking and sort of you know hear what you're saying and about the good the, the good of the the project as opposed to individual egos mm. um that might have just be my experience but yeah. um but i'm finding people in books much much nicer to deal with yeah and how much did your agent and editors contribute to sort of the final product with the silent patient because if you'd worked on it so much did they all just kind of go, yeah, it's pretty much there, or or did they then ask for further? Pretty much, they didn't. They they all they all said um, that they felt that it, it was unusually, I don't know what the word that was they used, but you know, finished um, mm. because I'd worked on it so much. Um, but the, what they did do with the New York editor was particularly brilliant, and he said, uh, he said that he thought the ending was rushed, and he was okay. right, and so he told me to slow down and think about it again. Yeah. Um, and I did, and that was great to, yeah. to, to take that note. Yeah. 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 And the title was it there from the beginning? That was from the beginning. I was yeah. going to originally. Originally, I was going to call it the Alcestis, and I just thought no one's going to be able to pronounce that. <laughs> so I decided against that. So I was looking for you know playing yeah. around with different silent yeah. titles. Yeah. Yeah. No, the Silent Patient is a much better title. Oh, good. Thank you. Because a lot of people wouldn't know that there are. I mean, I think there's a lot of truth in the idea that if readers see a title and they don't know what it is immediately it can be off-putting it's fine if it it's like words they recognize creating an intriguing question but a word they don't recognize i think a lot of people would just got to go that's a strange thing i'm Mm -hmm. going to pick it up whereas the silent patient Mm -hmm. has got a question in it it's like who is the silent patient why is he or she silent so that's immediately when you, Pick-up-able. I, when you and I were talking before, you were talking about this idea of a hook. Yeah. Is that kind of similar, do you think? It's sort of a feeling of like you want to try and grab something yeah. at the beginning, right? If a title... so I, Well, I am a hook addict. Mm-hmm. Uh, Could so, you help me with that a bit? What exactly do you mean by hook? So, if somebody describes a novel to me, 
in a few lines or a paragraph or if I read the blurb of a novel and if there's a question in there or an obvious mystery that alerts my curiosity and makes me think I've got to know I have to know what, what's going on here. So it's about curiosity, it's about kind of piquing yeah, your it's curiosity. About, yeah, it's right. about a question that's intriguing and that you want an answer to. Right. So the blurb for the silent patient, I immediately wanted to know, what would this woman say if she would speak? And why, why is she yeah, not speaking? Yeah. Well, that was... A, you know, so, you know, you just have to... And the silent patient as a title has questions in it, I in see. a way that, for example, the oak tree doesn't immediately have a question in it yes um i mean one of my all-time favorite titles even though it's not one of her best novels is agatha christie's why didn't they ask evans yeah yeah so like that could when you just see that title it could just turn out to be you know why didn't they ask evans to buy a pint of milk (laughs) evans was going to tesco they could have asked you know and it could have been something really boring but when you just see the title why didn't they ask Evans? Yeah. You have to know yes, who's Evans. Yeah, what didn't do. they ask? Yeah. You know, and you're yeah. just immediately invested. So And that was why again, you know, so like the with the, the first line of the silent patient is um Alicia Berenson was thirty three years old when she killed her husband. Mm. And I took that, you know, I for the idea for that from uh, Ruth Rendell's The Judgment and Stone, where she says yes. Eunice Parchment Eunice Parchment killed this whatever their family name was because she could not read. All right. All right. Yeah. And so you, 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 it's something about the, it's, you know, why done it, I guess is what you would, how you would yeah. describe it. But you, you, it's, it's quite a bold, audacious move to, to tell the, the reader at the beginning, you know, who did it. Yeah. And then you kind of, the interest comes from trying to understand how they got to this point. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is bold. And it's, the reason it's bold is because it's kind of saying, since I'm giving you what normally you'd have to wait till the end to get, that kind of suggests that I've, I think... I've got bigger things up my sleeve. I've got even better things. I yeah, can give you yeah, this thing yeah. that's usually the thing you wait for right now, and I'm satisfied that I'll still be delivering surprises later on, and they'll be yes. even better than this. So, yeah, I mean, it's great. Again, it's like an, a narrative opening that really suggests confidence and narrative authority. Uh, and as long as you deliver on that, it's great. Um, and you do, because there is a massive surprise. Um, right, yeah. Two massive surprises, in fact. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah, so it, it all works really well. Okay, now, before I let you go, I have to ask you, this podcast has several questions... Like the, that, Pru- the Proust questionnaire. ...that get asked at the end. Uh, and uh, I would be ticked off if I forgot to ask you them. So, I will run through these. Where do you write... Um, I write at the kitchen table usually as we as we you and I had lunch together today and we spoke about this a bit um I find I have a study but I find that the thought of having to go and write there very paralyzing so you never write there no never so does anything happen in that no room? it's an empty it's room an empty it's empty ridiculous room. <laughs> yeah it's I with, also it, with have... a desk you yeah, know everything yeah. waiting but I never go in yeah there. same I have a beautiful <laughs> empty room that I don't write in but That's should funny. but I keep kidding myself that one day I will start writing I thought there. that too but now I don't yeah, no, yeah. I don't. in fact my empty writing room now gets used as a sort of teenage party room. Okay. It's, it's the, bigger than mine. It's then. the room where I have to go and pick up empty Copperberg bottles oh, after well. a teenage party. Uh, but I think this is fate saying, you know, either reclaim your writing room by writing in it or else this is what's going to happen. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> do you write anything by hand? I do write a lot by hand. 
Yeah, I write all my, my all my notes, outlines, diagrams, um, yeah. beat sheets, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. In a nice notebook or just no, on no paper? just paper all over the place. Um, yeah. But then when you're doing the sort of first draft, you would do it on a computer. Yeah, but then when I read the draft, I read it on paper and I make notes on, yeah. in pencil. Yeah. Uh, tea or coffee or something stronger <laughs> when you're writing? Nothing stronger, I'm afraid. I lose all inclination to write after a drink. Um, I uh, I I. I drink a lot of coffee, too much. Okay, we've already covered the planning question and established that you are a planner. Uh, morning, afternoon or evening writer? I do think you have to plan if you write crime novels, don't you? I mean, do well, you, you don't ha- have you met I'm any... A- oh God, I meet them all, I can because barely how- leave the house without because bumping you- into 17 crime writers who say, oh, I just start with a smell and see where it goes. But if you I- say you and I write <laughs> detective stories, how on earth can you write that without very strong... Plan. I don't understand how you could do that. It's not like I mean, I of... don't get it either because I'm a planner, but it's definitely the case that you can because more often than not, when I'm on a panel with other crime writers and we're asked, do you plan or not, the other writers always say, not at all. Wow. And that it would somehow... Are they telling the truth? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I genuinely think they are. They say that it would spoil it for them when they were actually writing the novel if they knew what the story was going to be. So they like to start with either and a sort of character they're interested in or an opening scenario and then see how it develops while writing the book and then they're willing to go back and I mean they they do all say that once they get to the end of the first draft and they've seen how it's developed then then they have to go back and tidy it up so that all those things you need to plant are planted a couple of nights ago I watched which is probably one of my probably my favourite film my top three favourite films is that Witness the Prosecution (gasps) Like, you like it. The Christy. black and yeah, white the Charles Lawton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely one of my top five favourite films. Perfect. It is perfect. And I was just sitting there just in awe, just watching the way that she does that, the way that every setup is set up. You set to you, she makes you expect the opposite. Mm. And you can't make someone expect the opposite unless you know what is what you want them to expect and how you're going to reverse yeah. that expectation, which is yeah. all about planning for me. It's all about, you can't wing that kind of thing. It happens because yeah. you're thinking. I, I couldn't imagine not planning unless I was willing to spend like 10 years yeah. kind of yeah. rewriting but I, the drafts yeah. I think maybe which is what Robert Town did with Chinatown yeah he wrote and he didn't plan and he would get to a place where I know because a friend of mine uh, sorry one of my teachers was a friend of his he would get to where he would write you know 50 pages of the screenplay think nope this is the wrong place mm. tear it up go to page mm. one start again and go down but you the see different... we probably do all that in our heads while we're doing the just, plan just walking around thinking yes you're right and then you know I I like to sort of do all that sort of more efficiently, not not writing each possible idea into a whole draft and then having to... I agree. Um, but I do believe, genuinely, there's a lot of crime writers who just sort of think that in order for them to be gripped by the writing, it has to be a sort of journey of discovery for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. But you Whereas can get that I, effect I get by... more than enough satisfaction out of just writing it knowing what the story is, but still seeing how it develops. And I always follow that Stephen King tip of putting it away for six weeks before yeah. reading it. And that gives mm. you the enough distance where you are surprised by yeah. things. Yeah. yeah. So morning, afternoon or evening, which is your best time for writing? Probably afternoon. I can't. I'm not psychologically ready for it in the morning. I procrastinate for as long as I possibly can. <laughs> exactly the same. <laughs> uh, music, radio or silence when you're writing? Um, music, uh, classical music. 
Okay, and you can yeah. still hear the rhythm of the sentences and everything? Yeah, but I do tend to listen to the same things again and again in a very kind of ritualistic sort of okay. way. So I don't even hear them anymore. It's like white noise, really. <laughs> do you have a daily word count when you're writing? And if so, how much? No, I don't. I never think about words ever. Okay. I just think I have to do a chapter a day. Oh, okay. So you have a daily chapter count. Daily chapter, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, so does that mean that if your book is, say, 30 chapters long, that you could write it in 30 days? Yeah, in theory. Yeah. But then it would be your first draft in 30 days, yeah. which would be yeah. rubbish, and it would have to rewrite it. So that's all, a whole process. But you know. Does anyone else read your work before you send it to your agent? No. I think we know the answer to this. Which author has been the biggest <laughs> influence on your writing? Yeah, Christie, of course. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it wouldn't say she's like the best author that I've read. I mean, you know, like my favourite. Like, in terms of writing, <laughs> so say my favourite writer is, yeah. is Evelyn Waugh. Okay. I love him so much, and I read him all the time just because he's, he can write perfect sentences. Yeah, you know? and that's not really Christie's focus of interest. So it's a different thing. Yeah, she does write well, but she doesn't write beauty like he does you know so it's a different yeah I think you're putting a face you disagree do you no I think I mean I do think her writing is I mean it's very different obviously from Evelyn Waugh but I do think she's a brilliant writer and I think the reason I'm sure of this is that I can know the plots and the villains and you everything enjoy it. and I just yeah. love reading those books and Me there's got to be something brilliant about writing that you just want to read over and over again. And that's why I keep rereading her when I write and think what would Christy do because I try because she does, she she serves up this gorgeous kind of nostalgia as well that's kind of not just nostalgia but it's a very rich sensory experience yeah. her novels because it's full of food. Yeah. You know and and kind of Opinions and, and, and sort of furniture. And little observations. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, totally. Okay, so, but would you say she, has she been a bigger influence than Evelyn Waugh? Oh yeah, 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 totally, yeah. Okay, do you believe in writer's block and what do you do if it strikes? I don't, I mean, I, every day is a struggle. I don't really, you know, every day is a block, but I don't, so I don't, no, I don't know what that means. Really. Yeah. I don't understand that. Yeah. So there's a block every day and you just overcome it and write. Well, many, many blocks. Many blocks. <laughs> every but day. But you just get used to yeah, you just keep shoveling going. them out of the way. Otherwise, you, yeah, 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 I do I do think. And I think that that's what, you know, writing a novel and actually completing it mm. teaches you. And like, you know, so even now in my second book, I've been struggling. I think I promised myself at the very least I will finish a draft. Yeah. And once you've done a draft, you can fix it. Okay. Uh, and this last question, now I'm assuming it means which do you prefer rather than which are you, because you aren't either, cat or dog? <laughs> I think it means are you a cat person or a dog person, although you might be both. And this was what got what to do with writing, exactly? Yeah, um, I don't know. Uh, I'm interesting. A, a, dog, a dog person, very much so. Yeah, me too. Cats are, cats are good too, they're not, though. They're not emotionally needy enough for me. I like my yeah. animals to be much more kind of emotionally available. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this was when Midge asked me this question. Uh -huh. uh, this was how we got onto the topic of whether my dog should be Prime Minister because uh -huh. I said, actually, the thing that would unite the world politically now when everything's so fractured <laughs> is for a really cute dog to be Prime Minister. Yeah. And it would be brilliant because nobody would know what their opinions were about anything. <laughs> and it would, be an, it would be an opportunity for us all to realise that actually having opinions is just a, a way for us all to fall out. So to have a Prime Minister dog with no, with no opinions, opinions yeah. would actually be very unifying. Yeah, yeah. Any and, support for and, this theory? And, well, I think it probably couldn't do a worse job than you know, the current <laughs> state of affairs. So. 
Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Alex, for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Sophie. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I want to thank Alex Michaelidis and Sophie Hanna for allowing us to eavesdrop on their conversation. If you have thoughts on crime writing or writing or reading suspense, I would love to hear from you. Or maybe you have an idea or you want to suggest a guest or a question for us to cover on our podcast, or you want to tell us about a book that has got you thinking. Email me at midge.gillis at tutor.ice.cam.ac.uk. So on behalf of Sophie, Hannah and everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading in every genre and we hope you have a wonderful weekend.